Good afternoon. Welcome to the Hudson Institute. My name is Lee Smith. I am a senior fellow here, as well as a senior editor at the Weekly Standard. I want to introduce this afternoon's panel, um, The Future of the Middle East, Regional Scenarios Beyond the Obama Years. And the fantastic panel that we've convened this afternoon uh, are, it's, uh, comprised, comprises entirely Hudson Institute fellows. To my immediate left is Mr. Shmuel Barr. To his left is Michael Duran, and to his left is Halal Fratkin. Um, we're going to have a brief, uh, an, a brief introductory period, then we'll go into more general conversation, and I hope that we will have some time at the end, around uh, 1.30 or 1.45, for, to take some questions and open it up like that. In the meantime, I wanted to thank you very much again. I think you're really going to enjoy this spectacular panel, um, and I'm going to ask um, Mr. Barr to open it up. This is the microphone? Yes. Uh, good, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, uh, especially since it's cold outside and it's warm inside um, uh, and dry, uh, which it isn't in the Middle East. In the Middle East, it's, um, uh, I, I think that uh, here in Washington, I've been meeting with all and sundry, and I get the impression that I come into a parallel world and that the Middle East where I live and the Middle East as it's seen from here from Foggy Bottom or from other places in Washington is a totally different world, far more optimistic. And I am try to understand what the cause of this optimism is, and I have uh, yet not been able to ascertain that. Um, when we are looking at the Middle East, and I think that uh, we have to understand that nothing that has happened should have been a surprise, and this is extremely important because. Uh, my colleagues here know that uh, back in the early 2010, uh, we were predicting the possible demise of the Egyptian regime and that the Muslim Brotherhood would come to power. The disintegration of Syria was something which you could always already see in the beginning of 2010, that the Syrian regime was losing control over its old elites. Um, and uh, what has happened is that, and I'm not going back into the uh, old question of uh, how the U.S. performed in the initial stages of the, uh, uh, of the Arab Spring, or call it the winter of our discontent. Uh, but uh, since then, we now have a situation where at a certain time you could have brought, precipitated the fall of the Syrian regime and the rise of a reasonably secular opposition. You missed that by striking a deal with uh, Syria, a strange deal, because uh, I've yet to understand why killing 1,400 people with chemical weapons is more dreadly than to kill 200,000 people with uh, conventional weapons, uh, but you gave immunity to the Syrian regime, and you allowed Iran to take over Syria. Uh, you also actually precipitated the situation where, um, a, by, again, sins of omission, uh, not taking action on the burgeoning uh, ISIS um, uh, development, which also was something which here I've met with people in Washington. This, uh, your intelligence community definitely wasn't blind to what was happening in Syria and Iraq. They were understanding that it was happening, and... Nevertheless, uh, nobody took any action. At a very early stage, had certain actions been taken, 
the current situation could have been averted. Now, uh, you're doing a very strange thing. You are bombing, you're doing token bombing of ISIS, and you, I get the impression that nobody is actually applying a classic World War II Carver analysis of the bombing campaign. What is, what is the bombing worth? What you're doing is, you're doing bombing which is counterproductive because it is enhancing the status of ISIS. A movement or an organization equates itself to its enemy. In other words, we are who our enemy is. If our enemy is the United States, and the United States is doing all it can to defeat us, and with one bomb it's killing two donkeys and a horse, and the next day it's killing two horses and a donkey, and then, uh, uh, or Muhammad Ahmad in a Toyota uh, across the road, then you aren't succeeding, and if America isn't succeeding, then we are the strong horse. And this is how it's perceived. We've done some very interesting social media analysis uh, on all of the sentiment towards ISIS. ISIS's position and status in the Middle East is getting stronger and stronger because it is standing up to America. It's beheading Americans, and America can't do a damn thing. So we have to understand that Syria is irrevocably broken. This is Humpty Dumpty. All the king's horses and all the king's men, including the president's horses and men, can't put Humpty together again. And this we have to understand. Iraq is irrevocably broken. There will not be any Iraq. The question is where you stand on Kurdistan. The obsession with saying there is a Syria, there is an Iraq, is preventing you from saying, yes, actually the idea of an independent Kurdistan as a pro-American, pro-Western entity is a good idea because when we see ISIS, which is here to stay, one day saying, well, the benchmark is what al-Qaeda, our predecessor, did to the Americans, we've got to do something similar, but you need some entity there which can support you in acting against uh, ISIS. It won't be Jordan, which in itself is now suffering from 1.8 million Syrian refugees. It won't be Turkey, which is basically aiding and abetting ISIS. Uh, you will need an entity there, and therefore only by accepting the reality that Syria is broken, Iraq is broken, you can then move on to say, what sort of a map in the Middle East do we want to see? Uh, the other thing is we are coming dangerously close. With uh, The demographic situation has changed irrevocably. Because the Syrian crisis isn't going to end within the next few years, the Syrian refugee crisis is going to exacerbate. Lebanon has 1.4, at least 1.4 million uh, Syrian refugees in a population of 4 million. Jordan, 1.8 in a population of 6 million. This has changed the situation entirely. The Jordanians feel that they have an existential threat. They say some of these uh, refugees could be uh, hidden ISIS uh, operatives and some of them could be hidden uh, Assad operatives. Uh, so here you have a critical state which is so important, so essential to American interests in the Middle East. I do not get the impression that people here are aware of the criticalness of the situation and are saying, what do we do to keep this from engulfing Jordan? One of the things, for example, the fact that you have Jabhat al-Nusra on the Jordanian border 
I would say that instead of concentrating on helping Turkey create a buffer zone, on the, uh, Turkey can fend for itself, but to say you've got to create a situation uh, where you have some sort of pro-American Syrian opposition in the south, and you can because actually most of the south is very Ba'athist. In other words, it's the old Ba'ath people who are now against the regime. They're not Islamists. And to push out Jabhat al-Nusra and say, look, with the Jordanians, we're going to have our proxy buffer zone, uh, more or less like Israel had with South Lebanon in the time with Antoine Haddad, with Lachad, and um, just in order to protect Jordan because it's your interest. Now, I know that sounds really colonialist and imperialist, and you don't like to think in those terms here anymore, but you have to protect your interests. Uh, I think that we're going to see the the Iranian uh, nuclear plan means that you are, by the end of this period, the Obama administration, you are going to have an agreement with Iran which places Iran permanently, until Iran decides otherwise, at the level of a three month away threshold state. Saudi Arabia, Egypt cannot accept that because the time frame for if they break out in three months or, or sneak out, they can't start a nuclear program just two months ahead, which means that Saudi Arabia is going to run to the Pakistanis and consolidate their agreement with the Pakistanis for extended assurances. I find it difficult to believe that uh, al-Sisi, uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, Nasser uh, 2.0, is going to accept that the Pakistanis are going to be the protectors of the Sunni Arab world. They will probably go to the Saudis and say, "You fight just like you finance the Pakistani program, finance our program. In other words, we are heading with this plan into the polynuclear Middle East. A polynuclear Middle East is not going to be like the Cold War for various reasons that I can elaborate on, uh, which I won't at the moment, a polynuclear Middle East means a very high potential of constant uh, uh, friction, constant tension, and possible miscalculation, which can lead to nuclear war. Uh, so that is, at this time of the day, my optimistic scenario of the Middle East. Uh, I'll leave my pessimistic scenario for the end. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much. Uh, Mike, would you like to uh, follow up on that? Hugely optimistic reading. Yes, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks very much. <clears throat> I'm uh, I, I'm I'm very excited and disappointed by Shmuel's presentation. Uh, I'm excited because I agree with every word of it. I'm disappointed because I agree with every word of it. Uh, the The Irishman the Irishman in me wants to have a fight, um, and I can't see anything to, to really fight with him about. So I'll just uh, uh, let me just elaborate on some of the things he said, um, and maybe offer some explanations for some of the strange attitudes that uh, Shmuel has found in Washington. Um, I, I basically heard him saying, uh, not in so many words, that th- this is a parallel universe here, maybe did use those words, um, uh, and it calls to mind um, uh, a joke uh, that was very, Ronald Reagan was very fond of. Um, Ronald Reagan uh, told a joke, uh, you're probably all familiar with it, about the, this, uh, this boy who was uh, an inveterate optimist. Um, and uh, when Shmuel is saying that he, when he talks to the administration and they seem to not be concerned about what's going on and they see rosy scenarios, um, the, the story that Ronald Reagan told was about a, 
a, a boy uh, who loved ponies, and uh, his father gave him a, a pile of dung, uh, and he got on top of it and started shoveling, 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 and the father said, what are you doing? And he said, there's, there's so much dung here, there has to be a pony in here somewhere. Um, and this is uh, what, what we're hearing from, from the administration. There's a, a, in, each, in each area of the, the Middle East, um, they say, here's what <coughs> we're doing today, and then at a certain point, a, a pony emerges. Uh, from the from the horrible thing that we that, that we see there. So at a certain point in Iraq, the Iraqi government is going to open up. It's going to stop being a rapacious sectarian uh, uh, government backed by Iran um, and uh, whose writ is enforced by by uh, Shiite militias. And it's going to open up to the Sunnis, and then uh, uh, and then a cleavage is going to develop between the tribes and um, uh, and ISIS, and we're going to have a stabilized Iraq. Um, and in Syria, the pony is going to emerge in Syria, too. Uh, the Assad government is going to stop being a rapacious uh, uh, Alawite government uh, with, uh, with Alawite and Shiite militias backed by Iran, murdering Sunnis. Uh, and um, it's going to open up, and there's going to be some kind of caretaker government with shared, uh, with shared power, and we're going to stabilize Syria, uh, and so on and, and, and so forth. Um, so you have to conclude that either uh, the... White House is in a parallel uh, is in a parallel universe, or it has very strange ideas about uh, uh, and has very strange ideas about the the Middle East, or it's um, uh, it's not really saying what it really thinks. And I I think that the latter is the is, is the case. They're not saying what they really think, and the the actual uh, the president's actual logic goes something like this: we. We cannot have a repeat of the uh, of the Iraq War of 2003. We can't have a massive imposition of U.S. Uh, of U.S. troops on the ground, and we we have to pull uh, we 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 have to pull back. Um, we can tolerate an enormous amount. Unlike during the Cold War, we can tolerate an enormous amount of disruption in the Middle East. Uh, we're not going to say that because it makes us sound incredibly. Uh, incredibly cynical, uh, but but that's the but, but that's the reality of the uh, uh, of the case. With regard to ISIS, it's a horrible organization. It's violent. It's uh, it, it's uh, it's disgusting. But the cost of the cost of defeating ISIS means maybe eighty to one hundred thousand troops back on the ground in Iraq, a price that we don't want to pay. And we're not guaranteed that once we defeat ISIS and we pick up and leave, we're not going to have something similar. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a containment strategy. And the key to that containment strategy, and this is the real thing that they don't want to say, is um, a, a power-sharing agreement in the region with Iran. And that's what, we're, uh, that's what, we're, that's what we're, we're, we're actually doing. We're aligning with Iran without saying it. Um, and the nuclear deal or the non-nuclear deal that we just rolled over uh, is, the, uh, is, is part and parcel of that vision of coming, a, a, of coming into a power-sharing agreement with, with, with Iran. The real deal that's on the table with the with the with the government in Tehran is not um, is not if you'll cut a deal with us on the nuclear weapons, then we can actually then we can come to some kind of agreement in the in the region. That's not the deal. The deal is we're offering you an agreement in the region. Help us out by 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 give us giving us a face saving agreement on the uh, on the uh, uh, on the nuclear deal. Um, so then. Questions going forward, I think, in terms, if we think about predictions for the for the long term, um, is there a possibility of stabilizing either Iraq or Syria? 
Um, I agree with, Sh uh, with Shmuel's uh, 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 very stark assessment that both are irrevocably uh, broken. I don't think, though, that they're broken in exactly the same way. Um, one could possibly imagine with the combination of Iraqi government uh, forces backed by Iran, Kurdish forces backed by Iran and the United States, and U.S. power of really diminishing ISIS on the ground in Iraq. But you'll never win because they have a safe haven across the border in Syria, and, there is, and oh, by the way, there is no border. Uh, but you could imagine a, you could you could imagine a somewhat uh, a, a sort of somewhat stable Iraq, but not a somewhat stable Syria in that uh, in that scenario. It's very difficult to imagine the scenario by which we get uh, a a, a, re a reconstituted uh, Syria, unless the United States takes very significant uh, uh, action, and that can come in one of two different ways. Either we do put a very large number of forces on the ground, and I think it's eighty thousand or above, to go in and defeat ISIS, and if we I mean, ISIS is not a real military. It's a very horrible organization. It's, uh, uh, it's brutal and so forth. But, but, but when faced with a real military, with real military capabilities, I think we, could, we, would destroy it, uh, we would destroy it very quickly. We then have to put something else in its place, and we don't have a political vision to go, uh, to, to go along with that. So option one is put uh, 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 massive troops on the ground. Option two is to switch away from the Iranian alignment. Because part of the deal... Part of the deal with the Iranians that we, the secret deal, or, or the, the tacit, I shouldn't say secret, say, the tacit deal that we're cutting with the Iranians is we won't topple Assad and we won't support our allies, the, the Turks and the Saudis, in the, to, uh, in the toppling of Assad. If you'll work along with this on this nuclear question that is so, um, that's so difficult to, with, for, for us, and if you'll work with us in the region uh, more broadly and you won't cause trouble for American troops and uh, and interests in the, uh, in, in the region. We can move away from that, and we can put together a Sunni coalition. Uh, with We can train Sunnis on the ground in Iraq and Syria, and we can put together a coalition in which Turkey and, and Saudi Arabia, a military coalition in which Turkey and Saudi Arabia would feature very prominently, and we can work to then stabilize Jihadistan, this region from, uh, from uh, Baghdad to Beirut or Baghdad to Aleppo. Uh, we could do that, but that means then uh, that means then risking an escalation with Iran, an escalation on the nuclear file and an escalation on the ground in which they may actually attack our positions. And so we then have to come up with a scenario beforehand to win the escalation ladder, uh, which is also a very scary proposition. So the administration prefers, I think, to just muddle through and look for the ponies that are going to come out of the dung. Uh, but the, as uh, Shmuel told us, uh, that's not going to happen. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thanks very much. Halel? Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks, Lee, and um, <clears throat> thank all of you. Um, I guess there are three, it seems to me that there are kind of three questions that were posed directly or, or indirectly. Um, uh, where, where will we be at the end of the Obama administration in terms of what the, the uh, landscape is in the Middle East? How did we get there? That is, what policies are we pursuing? And finally, what, if anything, there is to be done about it, probably not now, but uh, more likely after uh, with a new administration, uh, largely because of a reason that uh, Shmuel an answered or uh, mentioned earlier, which is that the administration has a great deal of confidence in its own view of things and is not likely to change it. 
So I, what it seems to me, the answer to the first question, roughly speaking, is that, uh, and you know, starting from uh, Shmuel's pre premise that already in 2010, uh, certainly by 2011, one could see that the old order of the region is breaking down. So what, what's the new order uh, uh, based on what's happened since and what may still happen between now and uh, a new administration? It seems to me that the region, the new order of the region is something like uh, tripartite. There is, on the one hand, uh, the Iranian Empire, uh, and it is an empire now, uh, not merely a crescent or an alliance, because as uh, a distinguished Iranian uh, recently said, they control things in four Arab capitals. Um, so it's more like an empire than an alliance at this point. And that's steadily increased uh, all the while that fighting goes on, because the, uh, it provides opportunities or it solicits uh, assistance from uh, from Iran, most recently in Iraq, where their air force was deployed in eastern, in eastern Iraq. So that's one part. The other part is the Islamic State, or another part. The second part is the Islamic State. And um, uh, it seems to me that um, we may degrade some of it, uh, although I'm, I'm not sure that we will degrade ver it very much uh, between now and 2017, but we certainly won't destroy it, and it's going to be a massive fact, right in the middle of the region. And finally, the third part, it seems to me, is what's left of the old order. Um, the variety of countries, parties that don't fit into <laughs> one of the other, uh, either the Islamic State uh, or, uh, or the uh, Shiite Empire. And that's roughly speaking, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf States, Egypt, um, Israel, uh, and maybe Turkey, although now it's a little unclear where, where they fit in. So that's w where it seems to me is, uh, what the, the region is going to look like uh, uh, at the end of two years. Um, how we got here, I think that's been very well covered by, uh, by Michael, uh, uh, the attitudes which have, have led to it. Uh, one, what I want to say is that what, what will be, I think, the dynamic at that point is uh, a very great, uh, uh, the uh, Iran and its empire will, will have a, a big wind at its back, a very large wind at its back, because it is, I think, the case that, as uh, Mike said, um, the administration is now looking to Iran as to, to sort of manage the, the region um, in, our, in our absence and in the absence of anyone else it wants to support. So the um just how powerful the Islamic State will be at that point is hard to say, but Iran will be taking the lead. Um, question is, I think for us, um, uh, when we get to um, another administration, is uh, how this will look to us. Uh, will we say, um, uh, as was put before, we can put up with the chaos, and, if, and what chaos we can't put up with we can hand over to the Iranians to manage for us. Uh, is that, will that be, continue to be uh, the view of American interests? I mean, Shmuel kept saying, you, we have to look at um, uh, our strategic interests, um, even at the risk of being imperial, or, or thinking of ourselves as imperialistic. But the question is, uh, has come to be whether we either can do that or wh whether we have a, uh, a notion anymore of what our interests are in the region. 
I mean, there's a very powerful uh, sense uh, conveyed, I think, by the president in a variety of ways that uh, maybe this place doesn't matter to us uh, so very much anymore. We'd like to get a nuclear deal because proliferation matters to us. The president is very clear on that being very important to him, but not so much uh, specific to the Middle East or the ways in which it could go crazy, but proliferation, non-proliferation as a global thing. And so uh, I'm not sure uh, exactly how much the American public and um, uh, its, uh, its leaders embrace that view or will reject that view or perhaps will reject it because by in another two years' time we will see some of the consequence of it, co consequences of it which are uh, very disturbing. I'll leave it at that. Thanks. Um, well, let me ask then. Let me, as I, I come around with follow-up questions, let me start with you, Shmuel, as you've been making um, your rounds here in Washington. What, certainly from an Israeli perspective, uh, an, an American involvement in the Middle East, serious involvement is serious, but why for American citizens, why for American policymakers, why shouldn't we just task all of our work out to Qasem Soleimani? He's a hard man. He knows what he's doing in the region. As Mike was saying, or as Halal said, they control four Arab capitals. How important are American interests in the Middle East? Well, um, the last time I counted Sunnis and Shiites in Muslim world, I, I, the last time I counted, there were far more Sunnis than there were Shiites. <clears throat> the last time oh, yeah, I'm I, sorry. Yeah, sorry. The last time I counted Sunnis and Shiites in the Muslim world, there were far more Sunnis than Shiites. I don't think that's changed since the last time I counted, and certainly in the Middle East. And the question is whether you want to be perceived during a period where more and more the Middle East is, sees itself as engaged in a Sunni-Shiite conflict. Uh, I did a project on a technological project dealing with the social media in the region, and we saw the sentiment rising towards uh, ISIS. What were people saying? ISIS is barbaric and they're cruel, but they are Sunnis who are fighting Alawites and Shiites, and I am Sunni. I can't be against Sunnis who are killing Shiites. I hope they won't come to my country, but as long as they're killing Shiites in Syria, I'm with them. Uh, the uh, frame of reference has become Sunni-Shiite. Once the United States is perceived so clearly as allying itself with Shiite domination over a region which is predominantly Sunni, then you are actually uh, ceding uh, the ground for further animosity towards the United States and for these organizations. I mean, I, I look at the propaganda of uh, ISIS, by the way, in a 40-page uh, uh, edition of Dabiq, uh, or in the, the regular propaganda in Arabic, you'll find Israel mentioned twice and the United States mentioned 60 times. Uh, it's obvious that their focus is the United States. Well, if, if I can ask, you were talking about our, um, if we seem to be allied with the Shia, that's a problem. I mean, how is that different from in the past, having been perceived in some ways correctly to be allied solely with Israel, even though it's clear that we back the Sunni order of the region. Lots of people generally around the region just saw our alliance with Israel. So how is uh, it different? Well, uh, you know, it's very interesting because uh, I was covering uh, Mr. Bin Laden back from 1987, and uh, he his animosity towards the United States had absolutely nothing to do with Israel. He almost 
in his early speeches, he never mentioned Israel. That wasn't the casus belli. The casus belli was America being America and being a source of uh, attractiveness to Muslims uh, to adopt American mm. ways and to abandon the ways of Islam, etc. And so uh, the American relationship with Israel, I, I, I don't think that that is the source of animosity towards the United States among the Islamists. That's definitely not. Uh, the fact is that today Israel and Saudi Arabia and Egypt have a far closer relationship, I think, than the administration, the American administration has with those countries because we are talking about the same threat. Uh, I, uh, at one case where I know that um, uh, a friend of mine was in Saudi Arabia and met with a very senior Saudi and uh, said, what will, your highness, what will the kingdom do if Israel attacks Iranian uh, uh, nuclear, uh, go, violates uh, Saudi airspace to attack uh, Iranian nuclear facilities? And so the, this senior prince says to him, sir, we hope we won't be in that situation, but if it happens, we will have absolutely no choice. We will turn off our radars. So, uh, so I think that it, it's important to understand that. Uh, I just want to mention something else. You know, we mentioned Babel Mandel. I, I was here in Washington. I won't mention where. But I asked people, you know, what is the most strategic issue that happened, you know, and nobody there noticed that the pro-Iranian Houthi rebels are moving towards Bab el-Mandeb and can close down the access to the Suez Canal. Now, nobody remembered that the 67 war began because closing down access, and that now you're talking about Iran being able to, controlling both the Hormuz and Bab el-Mandeb, being able to close Aqaba, Elat, and the Suez Canal. Now, if that isn't a strategic uh, event, I don't know what a strategic event is, and people here in Washington whom I spoke with uh, just weren't aware of it. They had seen the information that the Houthis, etc., they didn't realize the strategic implication. Thanks, Mo. Uh, Mike, would you like to... I'm, I'm going to ask you the same question, and I'm going to ask the same of Alel as well. Like, why, why is this important? Um, so the... The question uh, is, um, why can't we rely on... That's, on that, that, that's part of it. When we're talking about Middle East scenarios, right. though, like why in 5, 10, 15, 25 years, will the United States, does the United States need to be in the center? Or, yeah, why can't we task it out to a hard man like Qasem Soleimani? And the, I, I think um, we can't uh, because of all the reasons that, again, I have to agree with everything that Shmuel said, but then I'll add a few more uh, reasons. And... Um, and that is that the president has – the extent that the president has done as, um, as Hillel suggested and said this region just isn't as important to us as we thought it was, to the extent that he believed that we could, um, that, that we could pivot to Asia or rebalance, um, that has been proven incorrect. There are two moments, I think, when we – two moments when we, we see that actually we still have vital interests in this region – and that we can't, we can't leave it behind very easily. The first one was uh, when Assad used chemical weapons, uh, and the president felt compelled, after having made the argument better than anybody for the last two years, that anyone who would want to would want to uh, get involved in Syria had to have his head examined. The president felt compelled uh, to come forward and to make the case for getting involved in Syria. Now, uh, as it turned out, 
the, the, the Russians stepped in and they read his psychology correctly and they offered him a way off of the battlefield with honor. But it was very much as Shmuel, the, the, the deal that we made on Syrian chemical weapons was very much as Shmuel described. Uh, it, we gave, we, gave a, we, we formed a kind of non-aggression pact against Assad. We gave him immunity uh, in return for this show of giving up chemical weapons. He didn't actually give up chemical weapons. He still retains the capability to make them. He's still using chemical weapons of a different kind against the opposition and, uh, uh, and so forth. But the fact that the president was brought to that moment where he suddenly had to say, I want to go, uh, I, I want to go, uh, we, we, we must go fight. American interests uh, um, dictate that we go fight. It shows that his previous concept was incorrect. And then the, the, the second and even more uh, compelling case is the fact that we're now involved in a – he's now involved in a war in Iraq against ISIS, the exact thing that he dedicated himself to preventing, a, um, uh, a reimposition of American force in, um, in Iraq. Um, and and the, the problem here is that when, when people came forward over the last few years and said, we have a continuing interest in the Middle East, we have a, a big stake in the, uh, in the regional order – we have to be putting together a coalition now of allies to look after our interests. The president looked at that as a, a slippery slope back into war. So he didn't put together the coalition. So the, the great irony is that when it came time to actually do something to protect our interests, we could only operate unilaterally because we had not put together um, the coalition. So the, the president's effort to make sure that we didn't get involved in a unilateral action sort of ensured that we had no option other than a, than, than a unilateral action. And that, I think, is the, is the, is the, is the greatest argument. You can, you can play out the scenarios uh, – uh, you can play out the scenarios, um, uh, I think, uh, very easily. Just as Shmuel said, the majority of the population is Sunni. The majority of the population is not going to, <coughs> is not going to sit down comfortably and accept – um, a regional order that is completely dominated by Iran. So what we are doing is we are sowing the seeds of continuous conflict that is going to suck us in. So we either have to get involved on our, on our own terms and play by our rules, or we have to play by somebody else's rules. I think those are the only choices. Thanks, Mike. Halal? Yeah, well, uh, why not turn it over to Qasem Soleimani? I mean, this is, this is just an example. I mean, cause no, no, I know. It's, yeah, a nice know, I mean, it's a nice look, way. I, I mean, I, I'm, it's a nice way of putting yeah. it because... Um, it, it, just at the moment, it, it, a large part of the region is in the hands of Qasem Soleimani because right. he's calling the shots in in various places uh, and increasingly making himself visible in doing so. So it's it's um, obviously he does not um, is still answerable to uh, people above him, specifically Khamenei. But uh, it's it's not a, a bad way of framing it. First, I would say it would be a little bit awkward because the man has and his colleagues have a huge amount of American blood on his hands, and um, turning it over to such a person uh, uh, seems uh, awkward in that sense. But more to the point, um, these people are our enemies, and they mean to be our enemies. It's not – I mean, here I share the – the consternation of uh, my colleagues uh, Shmuel and Mike at the uh, the way in which things are looked at in uh, at present in, in the city and in the country that somehow these people um, it's all been a misunderstanding uh, with with Iran and the Islamic Republic it hasn't been a misunderstanding it the regime itself has from the very beginning uh, conceived of us as 
uh, its enemy um, and gives, gives its own reasons for that. And is unlikely to change its mind and is certainly not going to change its mind if it sees that it has, in some sense, managed to defeat us. It will uh, already, one can see from the course of the negotiations that, um, the w how was it put it when the extension was, um, uh, was uh, announced? Well, Khamenei said, they tr the, the United States tried to bring us to our knees and we didn't bend, right? We got them to bend, the, the US. So that's their perspective on what's going on. So they're not going to, um, they're going to do everything they can to harm us. Um, they may have other, they obviously have other objectives, but one of them is going to be to harm us. Now the question is how much harm they can do to us. That would be, uh, for that matter, how much harm the Islamic State can do to us. That's the other side of this, because both of them are uh, hostile to us. Um, and I would say that depends still on the question of whether Mike is right, that in the end we will have to be drawn back into the things in the Middle East. Do we, uh, do we care enough, uh, do we have solid enough interests in the Middle East, and specifically in the Gulf, uh, to make it absolutely necessary in the future for us to be involved? And therefore, if we have to be involved, then we, have to, we, we should try to, uh, our position should be as best as possible with a view to it. I also want to say this, that the other, <coughs> other aspect, things that you know, it's necessary to think about is where, if you're not going to sort of follow what seems to be a certain policy now, which is to sort of, um, in a way, subcontract American policy to Iran. Before that, we were subcontracting American policy to Turkey. That wasn't a, a big success either. Where where can we where is there a place for us to still to stand? And I think the the answer is there are still countries in the region that <laughs> look on us uh, as people they would like to um, be allied with, uh, and largely it's the Sunni countries and also Israel. That's that's an option. It's not an option we're pursuing particularly vigorously now. And but that may be the most obvious thing a new administration would do and say what. Um, uh, we've we've um, wasted a lot of our assets um, and advantages in this region over the past few years. What, what's left? What's left? And that will be left. Mm. Well, I, I'd just like to point out that everything that's been said here about um, trying to ignore the Middle East reminds me of what Trotsky said, that the you may not be interested in the revolution, the revolution is interested in you. And I think that that sort of encapsulates the problem that... Uh, because uh, I, I, I read on a regular basis the uh, IC's uh, you know, communications and what they write in public. Uh, they see themselves as the successors of Al-Qaeda. They are Al-Qaeda version 2.0, which has achieved the caliphate. Al-Qaeda has a benchmark. It attacked the United States in the United States. Al-Qaeda uh, version to zero cannot do less. So chopping off American heads of all sorts of poor guys who get caught there is not the idea of attacking America. You will, as they stabilize themselves, you will see them moving to the second stage. The second thing is, it is the duty of the caliph to use all, to avail himself of all weapons that the enemy has. The Alawite enemy has and has used chemical weapons. ISIS is actively thinking about 
acquiring and using chemical weapons. The same has to do with their discourse regarding nuclear weapons. They're far away from that, but you have to take into account that if we go down the road of the uh, nuclear agreement with Iran and Sunni, uh, uh, Sunni countries which are not stable finally fall into the hands of ISIS, ISIS or organizations like ISIS could inherit nuclear weapons. And this is further down the road, but I think it's the duty of a strategic-looking president or, uh, or administration to think beyond the two years left of, its, of the administration. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, let me, switch the, uh, let me just switch the frame somewhat. I do want to come back to Iran and Islamic State in a second. But when we look at things like um, if we see that the United States has withdrawn more and more from the region, is there any possibility? Because one argument would be, look, this is fantastic, the fact that the Egyptians and the Emiratis are flying sorties over Libya to take care of uh, militants there. Isn't that a good thing? Wouldn't we prefer it if the Saudis and Iranians can actually balance each other off so the U.S. doesn't need to be that involved? Wouldn't we like the people in the region, uh, particularly our Sunni, traditional Sunni partners, to take more responsibilities, that the United States does not always have to be there, that we don't, for instance, have to put boots on the ground when Saddam makes a run at Kuwait? Is there any possibility that in the future this will happen? Not in a blue moon. The Why? What's the... Then what kind of allies do they make? What, like, who are our allies there, aside well, from the Israelis, if they can't take care of themselves? Who are the people that we can – as Halal said, the Turks can't do it. First of all, you know, uh, I met with a, a, a uh, defense secretary in a European country who we had lunch together, and he said to me, you know what the problem is? We Europeans were always used to – being able to do whatever we want, because the Americans would come. There's the cavalry. So we screwed it up in World War I, World War II, Cold War, but the Americans were always there to take care of us. Now he said, we remain Europeans. The Americans have become like Europeans, and there's nobody around to be American. I, I think that that applies to the Middle East as well. The Egyptians and the Saudis, and the, they were all there when you had Desert Storm and you were bringing in enormous amounts of military force. And they said, oh, so we'll be here with some artillery and we'll do a show, etc." I mean, they weren't instrumental in the fighting. Even the Syrians were there. Um, they will not allow you to lead from behind. If you are saying it's not important enough for us to put our boots on the ground then why should we find ourselves in bed with the Iranians attacking ISIS where the Iranians are attacking Sunnis from the right and we are attacking Sunnis from the, uh, from the left? And what will our domestic uh, constituency say about that? And we care about our domestic constituency and we care about what they think about the regime because we've seen that regimes can fall. So there's no way whatsoever that under the circumstances they're going to prefer our uh, helping you out in that uh, as opposed to protecting their domestic interests. Mike, did you want to Did you want to follow me? Um, we, we fall into a, into a habit um, when we're talking about the Middle East of, uh, of uh, talking about it like it's a, like it's a bipolar um, 
contest between Iran and, um, and the others. Uh, when you actually look at the region under a microscope, it's really a hexapolar or a, I, uh, what, what is hex? Six? What's six. a plus six? A, Hexagonal. An eight is an octopolar, an octopolar contest. So that, um, you know, if you look am among the Sunnis, there's tremendous tension between Saudi Arabia and, uh, and Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia is, ho is hostile to the Muslim Brotherhood and Turkey, <coughs> together with the Qataris, is pushing a Muslim Brotherhood agenda. Um, and, uh, what, you know, if you look at the Syria contest, uh, yes, it is the Iranians versus the, um, the Saudis and the Turks, but the, the Turks really want a, uh, they would really like to have a Muslim Brotherhood Syria under their authority and the Saudis would like something else. And so there are actually a lot of agendas that are, that are, that are, that are playing, uh, playing themselves out. Um, there are many, many interests in the region that would like to see a stabilized Iraq and a stabilized um, Syria, but the region left to its own devices won't won't produce that won't produce that stability because of this um, hexapolar or, or octopolar structure. Um, also, uh, you know, Shmuel quoted Trotsky. I'll quote Lenin. Uh, um, Lenin, Lenin uh, referred to uh, Halal. Please don't <laughs> quote Stalin next. I just want to make no, no, sure I, that we're going to to that top that. them. I would yeah, have to uh, quote yeah, Marx. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. uh, uh, so. Uh, Lenin said about, uh, about peasants that they were a sack of potatoes, uh, by which he meant that they have peasants, they have interests. They have a common class interest, but because of their, uh, uh, because of their bourgeois aspirations, they look, each looks after his own individual interest, and they can't, they're incapable of acting together as a class. So they're a sack of potatoes. When you open up the sack, they all just fall in different, uh, in different directions. Our allies in the Middle East are also a sack of potatoes. Um, they're all moving in different directions. But the Iranians, and, th and this is the reason why I focus on the Iranians, um, it's not just that it's a disgusting regime that wants to harm us. Um, there are lots of disgusting regimes in the Middle East. It's, they also have a vision of regional order, and they are actively going about, uh, they are actively going about subverting us and our allies and creating a, 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 a hegemony. Part of the problem in the Middle East is, of course, um, our allies. Our allies are doing lots of things that, that we don't like. The, the, the only way we can restrain them, however, is from within a vigorous and robust alliance structure where we are clearly leading. We have to, we have to present the vision of regional order that we're, that we're fighting for, and we have to bring our allies together to the extent possible and assign roles and missions to them. And when we do that, we can then realize the common interests that they have, but which, the, but, but which, they, cannot, um, uh, which they cannot cooperate on if left to their own devices. But can I ask just to come back for a second to what Shmuel uh, quoting Trotsky, the idea of the Middle East, the Middle East will be interested in you. How do you get Americans interested in the Middle East? If, I'm sorry if I'm uh, misrepresenting your statement, but what it seems to me like you're saying is what we need to do is we need to organize all of the most incompetent incoherent regimes in the region to direct them, Mike, I just want to follow up with you here, to direct them against Iran, which is the most competent regime in the region because they actually have a vision for a regional order. It's our job to herd cats. That's what the United States, that's what United States policymakers should be doing in the Middle East. We should be spending money and manpower to do that. How do we, how do you make that case? Uh, well, it, 
politically, it's it's a difficult case to make. There, there's there's no there's no two ways about it. But the, I think politically, you have to we we have to explain um, to the American people that we have interests there, uh, that it's a very tough, difficult region, and if we and if we let the region uh, take care of itself, then um, our our interests are going to be are, are going to be harmed. Um, the we, we shouldn't be too disturbed by the fact that our allies are not set up to project their power across their borders. Um, I, I don't think that's such a bad thing. The same thing in Europe. We set up the European system so that each European government was responsible for the defense of its own territory, and it, it's our job to move in and to create the big, the big, uh, uh, the, the big uh, multilateral coalition to take, care of common, uh, to take care of common problems. That's the way we brought peace between Germany and, and France. I don't think we should spend a lot of time uh, crying about the fact that Germany can no longer really project its power across its, uh, um, across its borders. The same thing is true in the, in, in the Middle East. The Saudis don't have an expeditionary military uh, force. That's not a bad thing. If you look at the ideology of Saudi Arabia, that's a good thing. But it means that then we have to, we, we, we have to, we have to perform our role, which is to look after the regional order. And that's the role that we have abdicated. I'd like to ask Mike something. Uh, I, I want to just uh, make an observation about, about this, which is mm. the following. You don't have to herd cats if you're a tiger or a lion. <laughs> I mean, you know, there, there's uh, – uh, we have gotten into the mode of thinking that we have to organize everyone uh, and get very, very complicated and, uh, and so forth in, in, in bringing force to bear. Um, and if that can ha if that if you can do that fine but but it it's more likely to happen if you take a, a positive and forceful role and and I think the the evidence for that is um, taking uh, what uh, Mike said about Iran uh, uh, in conjunction with what Shmuel said about the relative uh, size of Sunnis and Shiites yes there are many many more Sunnis than Shiites uh, not as many in the Middle East as in the world as a whole but certainly in the Middle East, too. And yet, uh, the Shiites are, are making hay, uh, and not the Sunnis, and that's because they're very determined about what they are after and, and determined in the way that they pursue it. Now, um, they're not as powerful as we are, uh, and, and largely they have been able to uh, gain uh, the advantages that they have because we have uh, abdicated to them. We don't have to, but, if, but uh, they will continue to... To advance, if we do, uh, I just Small want to yes, make please. an uh, observation. Um, Mike said something very interesting. We have to explain to the American people that we have interests which are beyond the immediate interests, and I think that that touches on a problem in in the U.S. but in democratic societies as well, when leaders can no longer say, "Well, I know what public opinion is, but I've got to, I'm going to tell the public that there are things beyond what it is thinking now." And uh, in other words, uh, when you think back in World War II of uh, Roosevelt or Churchill telling the public, look, it's hurting now, but it'll hurt worse if we don't do what hurts now. Um, and this doesn't exist anymore. Today, it's a matter of public opinion polls. And you say, oh, the people don't want to go into Syria, or, uh, you know, the people do want to go into Syria. And, and this isn't the role of a leader. This is the role of leadership, and I think we suffer from that as well. In Israel, all of the Western civilization suffers from it. The role of a leader is to look beyond 
what public opinion says. Now, public opinion today is far more <coughs> expressive. You know it m much easier, and it makes it more difficult to be a leader today. And uh, I, that's something that we have to take into account. Um, the other thing is um, what you can explain is some. I, I was in the UK. I was meeting with people in the counterterrorism community. They said they already have um, a permanent cycle of foreign fighters going into Syria, Iraq. They send back in the Twitter account, look at me on a tank, look at me eating the liver of an Alawite, look at me with the head of a, an infidel. And then they are sent back by their handlers in ISIS to the UK as recruiters. And very similar to an army <coughs> where if you want to recruit, if you want to send officers to ROTC to encourage people to, uh, to uh, recruit, you don't send somebody who's never left his desk in Arlington. You send somebody who's been in the field. And this is what they're doing. So this has actually been established. And I heard it in Spain. I heard it in France, in Belgium, in the UK. Now, what this means is that over the next years, you're going to have a growing internal threat in Western Europe and in the United States of potential uh, international terrorism coming from there. And if that isn't a clear strategic interest, I don't know what is. Uh, I mean, Mike, do you want to address that? Yeah. Just, I just quickly wanted to say, the president had opportunities to, to make the case, I think, um, with relative ease uh, to the American people, and he decided not to avail, him, avail himself of the opportunities. One was just after the two journalists were beheaded. And overnight, the, the polling went from 60% of the public or 66% of the public against any intervention in Syria to 66 in favor of it. And that was an opportunity when he had the attention of the people uh, and he could say that uh, there, is a, there, is a, there is a threat. Uh, it's a threat to the United States' homeland to have an al-Qaeda safe haven. We are, we are creating conditions in which we're going to have a repeat of 9-11 if we don't take action to stabilize this region. Right. But he didn't. He, he clearly didn't want to use it for that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm following on this idea of leadership. That I mean, I, I think that we can look at the Obama administration and the Bush administration as well and fault them for leadership in different ways. But it's the Japanese who made the case for the American entry into World War II. It wasn't Roosevelt. Right? <laughs> yes. And, 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 and that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, how do you... But Churchill made the case for entry into World War II for Britain. Yes. And the first thing that, yeah. the first thing that Roosevelt did when the Japanese attacked was declare war against the Nazis. Yeah. So he used it for... He had a vision of where he wanted to go, and he used it right. in that direction. Um, Halel, did you, were you going to follow up on something? No, no, well, okay. you, you had a question you wanted okay, to Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, so. one of the things that I want to turn, turn around right now is we're, we're lucky to have you here, Shmuel. If, if we can um, get like a little bit of a sense of what, uh, what Israeli futures look like, if you can get a sense like what you're thinking about that, what's that, what that will look like, especially, let's say, in regards to the Iranian nuclear bomb. Let's start with that. Okay. In Israeli eyes, uh, the number of people percentage of Israeli decision makers and decision uh, formers who uh, believe that we can live with, a, uh, with an Iranian nuclear bomb uh, or an Iranian nuclear capability is nil. In other words, nobody in the <coughs> military, in the political community thinks that, oh, you know, we can, we can fudge that. Uh, and this is because it's not only Iran. 
the implications of an Iranian nuclear weapon means that Israel has to make a fundamental change in its own uh, nuclear position as according to uh, foreign press, Israel has some capabilities which of course none of us know about. Um, uh, but that means that you out capabilities which means that you have to set up a, a doctrine of strategic deterrence which isn't based on ambiguity. It means that uh, you have exercises in which you go on alert and your neighbors go on alert, which of course means that you have to protect your population, which is an enormous expense, protecting your population in such a small country against mm. potential nuclear war. Uh, the implications just of being in an open nuclear competition or cold war, call it, Secondly, nobody in Israel believes that a Cold War or the Cold War of the, you know, the U.S.-Soviet Cold War can duplicate itself in the Middle East. The U.S. and Russia uh, reached uh, MAD when they already, each side had satellite capabilities, so you didn't need UMINT to come in and say, oh, they're starting something. You could see the silos. You knew if they were opening the silos or not. They... You both had uh, counter-ballistic missile capabilities. Uh, you both had second strike capabilities. In other words, you, by the time each of these countries reached their point of uh, nuclear capabilities and, uh, and ability to strike the other, then you had already set up a system which could balance it. You also had communication after the Cuban Missile Crisis. None of this will exist in the Middle East. The intelligence, except for Israel, nobody has satellite capabilities. In other words, uh, <coughs> the decisions will be made on hearsay. Command and control structures in the Middle East, you can imagine that in the U.S., the president has to have his identity verified you know, with the football, etc., and the uh, same in, in the Soviet Union. Uh, can you imagine Khomeini saying, okay, Rouhani, come over here and, and put in the code that I don't know of <laughs> to say that this is me? That, that doesn't happen. And in the Middle East, you don't have separation of, uh, of weapons and delivery system. It all belongs to the IRGC. And in other parts of the Middle East, nobody, you, you're only going to trust may, your brother and maybe your cousin, but certainly not somebody else. So when you put all of that together, it means a very unstable situation, and uh, it, which uh, I think that, you know, they say there's a saying that uh, a wise man doesn't go into a situation that a smart man has to extricate himself. So that's one thing. The other is that an Iranian nuclear capability is by definition a polynuclear Middle East. So it won't be just Israel and Iran. It will be Israel, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. With the, sorry, the, the, the political science term is hexapolar. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I've been using polynuclear <laughs> at the time. You know, uh, but what it means is that when one country sees a DEFCON whatever in the other country, then it doesn't know if it's against him or against somebody else, and nobody has a second strike capability which means use it or lose it. Now, this is a recipe mm. for nuclear war. So that's the way we see it. The Obama, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg article a few weeks ago. Chicken, sh chicken gate. Chicken yes, gate. right. Yeah. Suggested that, not suggested, Obama administration uh, officials were boasting that they had deterred or prevented 
uh, Netanyahu from striking. It could have been done two or three years ago. So you're saying that this is not accurate? Netanyahu has this thing that he believes, having lived in the United States and speaking very good English, that he can communicate to the Americans, Mm -hmm. he can bring the Americans on. And this is his big failure. Uh, Mm. And A, I'm not quite sure that Netanyahu will be prime minister after March. Mm. The chances are diminishing. Um, I don't know who will be, but a coalition of uh, uh, Labour, Lapid, Tsipi Livni, Lieberman, or something like that could look different. They they would bomb the Iranians. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. interesting enough, there's more of a chance that a left wing Ah, or left center will take action. Um, That's one thing. And uh, I think no matter what, if Mm -hmm. if we reach the point where the head of military uh, defense intelligence and the head of Mossad comes to the prime minister, whoever he or she may be, and says, Mr. and Mrs. Prime Minister, um, Goldemir liked to be called Mr. Prime Minister, she said it, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Prime Minister, here's the file, like the Cuban Missile file, and sorry to tell you, but deterrence, disruption, it's all over. We're passing the buck. At that point, no Israeli prime minister can say, I, who mm. have said that this is an existential threat to the existence of the Jewish people, I'm going to let it happen on my watch. Secondly, we do have enough capability, I believe. I, I pay taxes, and I hope my taxes have been put to work, mm. work and uh, we do have the capability to at least push back the Iranian mm. nuclear program by a few years. I was at a certain point involved in the early stages of the Oziraq, not in building it, Um, I remember that we thought that we could only, by destroying Iraq, we could put the Iraqi program back by two years. We didn't think about ten years. But when you shuffle the deck of cards, you don't just shuffle the deck of cards and stop playing. You shuffle the deck of cards, and every once in a while you shuffle them again and again. Hasn't the uh, hasn't the interim agreement, Halal? Hasn't the? Well, I'm sorry. Did you want to say? I think this is. Somewhat uh, misleading, or at least confusing. When the issue, uh, I mean, what the Obama administration uh, leaks through Goldberg, were referring to, was was something reasonably well known, or reasonably well leaked. Mm -hmm. In the summer of 2012, there was serious consideration given to a military action by Israel against Iraq. The argument against it was, within Israel, was largely, what will it cost us in American support? That was the mm-hmm. argument. Uh, the, uh, and it is that to which I think the, uh, oh, the Goldberg okay. article refers when it's saying, well, we stopped them. We right. stopped them by making that such a big issue right. that people within uh, Netanyahu's own cabinet were opposed to a strike, including people who are usually understood to be to the right of Netanyahu. Mm. So uh, the question, um, you know, uh, and it, it now, you know, one has seen people who at the time, in 2012, agreed that that was too big a, big a price to pay mm. to, ri- to risk American support, including people like retired General Yadlin. Now, a couple of years later, General Yadlin has 
voice his opinion that perhaps he was wrong at that time, or at least that uh, at some point or other it may be necessary to risk American support. But that's what's, what weighs, it seems to me, in, uh, heavily in the balance when this decision is being considered in Israel. Uh, besides the technical questions, and I do think that I, I do trust that Shmuel's taxes have gone to <laughs> very good use. Mike, did you want to say something? Yeah, I, I'm glad. I, I can finally disagree with Shmuel. I've been looking for an opportunity here. And um, I, I actually think the chance of the Israelis attacking um, uh, during the Obama administration, regardless of the, um, of the, of the, the um, identity of the prime minister, is very small. Um, no, during the Obama administration, I didn't say. I said at the point where it's clear that we're actually coming very clear near the uh, breakout. Well, even, even if that happened, if it came close to breakout uh, under the Obama administration, I, I don't think they would do it um, because, I, because I think, uh, and I, I, I have been told by many Israelis who are, including um, Israelis who were intimately involved in the decision-making in, in, in 2012, that I'm totally wrong about this. So let me just start by undermining my own credibility here <laughs> uh, and say that people who know much, much more than I do say that I'm wrong, um, but I, I still think I'm right. And I, and I think I'm right because when it comes time to say go, the prime minister is going to be aware of the fact that he's doing so in the teeth of the opposition from the, uh, from the United States. And he's going to be starting. It's not going to be just an action like in Syria where the Israelis intervene, uh, destroy a facility, and there's no counter-reaction. The prime minister has to assume that, he's, that this is the beginning of a war, and it could be a war that could be waged on many different fronts at once. And I think he's going to be very hesitant to get involved in such a conflict um, without the diplomatic support of the, um, of the United States, because Israeli prime ministers are very much aware that it's, it's easy to get into a war alone, but you can't get out of it without the, without the support of the United States because only the United States can translate the military victories on the ground into lasting political arrangements that safeguard the interests of Israel um, over the long term. Um, there's another problem, too. The Israelis, I mean, if you think of the, um, if you think of the, the regime or Khamenei as the king uh, on the chessboard and the, and the nuclear program as the queen, um, the Israelis can take out the queen, but they can't, they can't take out the king. Uh, they can't checkmate. The United States can actually checkmate the Iranians. But we, we, could, we can call into question the very – we could shake the regime to its core if we, decided, uh, uh, if we decided to do that. It's really our job to do. And the Israelis are going to be aware of the fact that at, at best they can take out the queen. I agree with Shmuel that – that, that could have very long, the, long-term the, consequences, but I, I don't think yeah. that's no, The assessment in Israel that is that, um, uh, again, I'm sorry that I'm using all sorts of uh, folk stories, but the stone that the village idiot threw into the well, the ten village wise men can't take it out. And not saying anybody is an idiot, but, um, uh, but we think that the, the general assessment in Israel is that the situation that has been created by the Obama administration is irrevocable. In other words, it will be very, very difficult for any future president, be Republican or Democrat, to significantly change that in the time frame of the Iranian nuclear program. I'm sorry, to, to, to change what? To, to, change, to, to adopt, to develop a 
proactive to, uh, position in which American credibility as deterring Iran or compellence towards <laughs> Iran. Just recently, uh, Dempsey uh, was asked at a forum, do you think that the United States is still immune from, uh, is, is, is still able to deter? And he answered, I don't think that the United States is still immune from, to, to uh, coercion. Not only not able to deter. So in order for America to recoup its deterrence capability and its coercive, coercive capability, that's not done overnight by electing a Republican president or a Democrat. But, but that was the case under the Bush administration as well, when, when Bush officials said they were worried that the Iranians might do something to U.S. troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm not, I'm not sure how much that has changed. Well, it can be changed. I mean, Schmoll uh, is certainly correct. It's not changed by an election. It's changed mm. by an action. If an action is taken... Mm. So uh, how, how, how hard is it? I'm, I'm just going to ask for some questions, but I just want to, if you want to raise your hands and get ready, but I just want to ask Shmuel here getting into this, so isn't it possible for a U.S. president to take action? I mean, how difficult would that... Uh, you know, um, there's a difference between possible and likely. Uh, I mean, it's possible. You know, everything's possible. Um, you have to think about seven impossible things before breakfast, right? Uh, but, but it's not likely, and Israel can't predicate its strategic planning on what is not likely. So, um, so I don't think Israel is waiting anymore for the U.S. to take the lead. We have accepted the idea that the United States has abdicated its role as superpower. The pre president of the United States said it in a landmark speech in the, in the last uh, in the UN, where basically said we have abdicated our role as the superpower. I don't think that's going to change significantly even after elections, and Israel can't rely on that. Um, I see someone who has a question, Rafi Danziger. Rafi, if you could just wait for the microphone to come and, um, and stand up. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I have two questions. The first one is that uh, there's only one Sunni regional power that can potentially stand up to Iran, and that's Turkey. And right now, Turkey is quite quiescent, but if indeed the Shiites are beginning to really spread in an area which uh, Turkey sees it's really its own turf, Ottoman and new Ottomanism, etc., will it really just uh, sit down and let it happen when its uh, conventional military is so much more powerful than that of Iran? So the Turkey question. And the second is kind of a devil's advocate question. And I have heard voices in the United States saying that now the United States is getting more and more independent in terms of its own oil. Uh, the Middle East is becoming less important because oil was always the most important issue in the Middle East for the United States. Uh, could uh, somebody in the, uh, comment on that, please? Thank you. Would, Mike, would you like to handle the oil? Um, uh, sure. So, pardon? Uh, can I take a stab at Turkey, too? Or you want, to do, you want to give that to somebody else? Just, okay. uh, ah, just, right. just the oil, just, just the oil. Boy, you, you guys didn't see the look I just got. It was yes. pure daggers. Uh, so uh, on, on the oil, I think it's already affecting us. Um, uh, among Middle East experts, there's a, uh, I think the dominant view is um, that we, the Middle East oil remains vital to the world economy. Um, the world economy is still um, something that we need to be uh, greatly concerned about. Therefore, we should be concerned about uh, Middle Eastern oil. But I think a psychology has taken hold in Washington that beca we, we, because we are um, on the verge of complete um, energy independence, 
um, the Middle East really is not as important as it um, as it used to be. And I, I'm I think sorry, that is that is, really what people say? They, this, that we're no, on the verge of complete no, no, energy think, independence? No, no, no. I think it's a I think it's a psychology. I uh. think it's a kind of mood uh, that has taken hold. Uh. I don't think it's an. I, I think if you if we saw the actual documents that were being produced in the uh, in the government, they would say what I what I first said that it it remains vital to the uh, okay, to, to, to the U.S. But um, I think that this, as I mentioned before, there's a now a tolerance for instability in the Middle East that we never saw before. Part of that is because we don't have a near-peer competitor like the Soviet uh-huh. Union over the horizon, but part of it's because I think we, we, we no longer think it matters as much. Halal, uh-huh. did you? Yeah. Uh, first, I just want to comment on this mood uh, issue, and I think mm-hmm. it, uh, there is the oil side of it, but there's also just the simple question of the violence. And uh, for me, the benchmarks for setting the mood are two speeches of the president, or a speech in an interview. The speech was the Cairo speech, in which the president more or less attributed a lot of the, the, the problems in the region to past American action and intervention, that we stirred the pot or uh, didn't calm it down. Then he gave this interview last winter uh, in New York, where his view of the Middle East seemed to have changed. The, in, that account, in that interview, the account was, this place is really a very crazy place, a really messy place. He referred to uh, crazy sectarianism, thugs, tribalism, all kinds of things. And that oh, this dear, is, dear. This is, these are the basic elements of the region, and it's, it produces enormous instability and violence. And it's not much we, but the other, it leads to the same conclusion. There's not much we can do about it, and it's not our, our fight, or as he put it in the case of Syria, it's not our civil war. So I think there's, a, you know, the, it, the public looking at what goes on in the region, I mean, looking at the Islamic State, which came from nowhere and suddenly is beheading people left and right, uh, 250,000 people dead in Syria, says, you know, there is something, uh, the, there is a reason to stay away from this if we can stay away. As for the question about Turkey, um, I would say, Rafi, that the Turks won't, won't do anything much of, at all. Um, it's true they have a very large army, which they're not very much inclined to use. They haven't used it across, across the immediate border that they have with what's going on that affects them and uh, where they have a stated objective, which is to remove Bashir al-Assad. And one can see that though they took a somewhat sterner position a while back with regard to, uh, to um, uh, certain, uh, certain aspects of the Shiite alliance. You could say they were, you know, they, uh, were very hostile to Maliki. Uh, they are gradually trying to make their peace with what the situation is there now. So, and I, th- I think Erdogan specifically is a person who has an extremely big mouth um, and uh, well, that's not that, that's not even uh, uh, argue. I don't even have to argue that everyone knows he has a big mouth. Which is whether what he delivers on, and in Turkey, uh, he has accomplished a lot outside of Turkey. Very, very little, uh, if at all. Shmuel, did you want to? Uh, yeah, uh, especially the Turkey Iran. Turkey Iran is yeah. a variance de convenience. It's uh, there's no doubt that there are differences. But at the moment, Turkey is has a tacit agreement with ISIS. The fact that Turkish uh, that uh, Turks were abducted by ISIS, were treated very nicely, played 
football with them and then were released, as, a, as opposed to others who were beheaded, I think that there was an agreement with the, with the Turks, and there still is an agreement with the Turks, and, the, and therefore the, Turkey will not uh, constrain ISIS. They will not be the spearhead in your, uh, in your action against ISIS. At the same time, uh, they have uh, a, a very intricate relationship with Iran, which at least, if I'm not saying it will never change, it may change, but if we're looking at the next year or so, I don't think that that's going to change. I, I, I have a question for the future, a, a speed round question. <laughs> um, it's a very, very quick answer and very quick explanation of all of you. Well, within, the next tech, within the next 10 years, who's the bigger problem, Iran or the Islamic State? Iran. 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 Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, another question? Yes, sir. Can you just wait for the microphone, please? And, and, and please keep it a question, and please keep it short. I will do both. Steve Landy, Manchester Trade. One sentence observation, one sentence question, two sentence question. Um, I spend my time in trade economic policy. I've seen that China and the U.S. are rapidly heading towards two agreements in the Far East, TPP, and Chinese agreement. They're going to make peace. Europe, we see peace. There's a lot of free trade agreements cutting across in the Middle East now that people have been involved with. I would suggest that as politicians or political experts, you look a little bit on using economics as a tool for peace if you need a 10-year vintage. My question, however, is really a disagreement and so on. I'm willing to accept the, dis the discussion of what's going to happen in Israel and so on. I mean, the economist just anointed Netanyahu, but I heard what you said they may not be there. But in the United States, nothing loses power quicker than a lame duck president particularly with an anointed successor like Hillary Clinton. So I would say that, with all due respect, and it's more of a question, do you really think that Obama will have any power in the next year or two as he comes closer and closer to the end of his race to dictate our policy in case the Israelis move? Or do you think the Republicans controlling the Congress and the future successor probably being very pro-Israel, don't you think that will undermine his effort? Thank you. No. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you just why, because if a president feels ideologically that he has a goal and he has a legacy, and, a foreign, and foreign policy is solely in the hands of the president, he can do everything he wants through executive waivers, you see that he's stepped, look, the executive uh, action regarding immigration, which is a domestic issue where it's far less tenable, than, uh, than in the foreign policy, than definitely in the foreign policy. Uh, I think that you have to give him credit that he does believe that he's doing what he should do and that he will be actually far more free to act in the foreign policy uh, area than he was before because he's not going to be reelected. If he's going to be elected to any further office, maybe it's Secretary General of the United Nations. But uh, so... That's on that. Regarding economy, uh, I'll just say it again in an Arab story about an Arab who goes into a Bedouin, who goes into a cave and finds Aladdin's lamp. And he rubs the lamp, and the genie comes out. And he says, I've got three wishes. He says, no, you've only got one wish. And he says, OK. And he says, I've got to read you the fine print. There's bureaucracy here. So he so says, hurry up. And he says, anything you get, your worst enemy gets twice. <laughs> Without hesitation, he says, take out one of my eyes. That's Middle East economy. 
101. Mike, did you want to follow that up? Do you have something? All right. Uh, I, I, All right. I, I, just had, I just had the one point. Uh, uh, I agree with Shmuel. Um, I, I, want, I do want to say something about the economic question. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I think it is the case that it depends on w what the policy is. Um, if the policy is one of, uh, in which one is uh, deliberately being very passive, it is really very, it's not only difficult, I think impossible for Congress to run foreign policy. So it's not really the case that there's going to be an alternative to it. it it's, it's sufficient that the president has the capacity to continue on with what he's been doing. And I think, but that, but in continuing on with what he's doing, that uh, it's not like it's, it stays in one place. Um, if for example, we're more or less right, or we don't agree on everything, but if we're more or less right, then Iran uh, increases its position. It it, uh, that position consolidates for another two years, in which case, you know, someone else has got to deal with it if they're going to. That's, I think, what can be accomplished by the president if you, in, the, in a vague sense of, or in an ambiguous sense of the term, accomplish. On the economic side, there's some, I, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to consider, but I want to mention just one fact which just it seems to me so amazing about the Middle East. It turns out that a lot of Turkish trade is with the Gulf. And for a long time, that trade prospered by going across Syria. Well, uh, that um, was impossible once the Civil War started. So the alternative was to, uh, there were two alternatives, one or actually three. One was to ship things through the canal uh, one was for uh, uh, land uh, across Egypt, and the other, curiously enough, is through Israel. Um, yeah, you can take uh, 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 trailer trucks from Turkey to Haifa, offload them, cross northern Israel, go into Jordan, and then right down, uh, follow the old route. At the present time, I th for a while, all three were operating. Israel was the, was the smallest part of that operation. I believe now it's the only part that's operating because uh, as a result of Erdogan's hostility to Sisi, uh, the Egyptians canceled the agreement regarding uh, uh, land access to Egypt. So um, Turkish trade now reaches the Gulf uh, exclusively through Israel. That's... That's an odd economic <laughs> One of the great things about that, though, is that um, the old um, valley train that goes through the Jezreel Valley built by the Ottomans is being rebuilt uh, in, a, in a hurry, and it's going to go from Haifa to Amman. Um, oh, to, to headless traffic? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you don't, so you don't have to take the trucks, trucks. off. And you should just put them on the truck. Okay, I have, I have a quick question for all of you, and you can take a little longer than one word answer, but no longer than 30 seconds. How long is the Syrian civil war going to last, and what will, uh, what will it look like at the end? Five to 10 years. And what will happen at the end? Will Syria be unified or broken uh, up? How? If Syria is Humpty Dumpty, and it won't ever be a country, there'll be a number of Syrias. Uh, this is political entropy, or strategic entropy, that the amount of energy which has been uh, expended from a system in moving from order to chaos isn't enough to bring it back. Nobody's going to bring in from outside external en en 
uh, energy in order to impose order in Syria, and therefore Syria will not be reunited. There's absolutely no reason for Syria to be reunited because there are different parts of the country, um, and therefore the civil war will continue as long as energy exists within the different elements which mm. are fighting the civil war, and of course uh, ISIS definitely will have energy from their own uh, oil, etc., and the Assad regime will have energy coming in from Iran and Russia, mm. so it will go on and on. Mike? Uh, your uh, question calls to mind the old uh, Egyptian joke about the... You're, the, you're not answering the question. The I'm answering it. The world's okay. greatest uh, expert on the Egyptian economy is on TV, and he's <laughs> asked, uh, what's, the, what's the state of the Egyptian <laughs> economy? And he says, average. And they said, uh, what, is, uh, uh, what does average mean? And he says, well... Uh, it's worse than yesterday, but better than tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that the I think the Syrian civil war is going to remain average for, for for as long as we can uh, imagine. Hello. Uh, I think it's going to go on for quite a while. I mean, the the one possible uh, I mean, the the administration is committed to the notion that there is a political settlement, um, and that there is no military solution. I I I, I think I might take this opportunity to praise a piece of Jackson Deals yesterday in the Post about the discussion of these terms, military solutions and political solutions. Um, but I would say it, it, it seems to me just conceivable that uh, various parties might agree to the continuation of the regime with Asa, without Assad, mm -hmm. and then there would be a de facto partition of the country. Uh, uh, one on, okay, on I'm, I'm just going to ask one, one last question. Um, what, happens after, uh, what happens after Khamenei dies? I think that there's going to be a, a um, different type of vilayati uh, paki. You already have quite a few people. There's an interesting uh, interest, uh, combination of interests of the IRGC and Rafsanjani and people in Qom who don't want another supreme leader per se, but want to have some sort of collective mm. leadership of supreme leader. While it's true that triumvirates always end up with one, uh, ever since the Roman Empire, but basically there's going to be an attempt to diffuse the power in order to turn Iran into more of a praetorian state under the mm. IRGC and with a titular or symbolic uh, supreme, supreme leader, leader. but uh, or Vali Fakir. Yeah. Mike? Well, after 2009, after the Green Revolution, they, um, the elite in Iran, I think, um, recognizes that they're on top of... Uh, um, that they are on top of a powder keg, um, and that uh, f factionalism among the elite could actually lead to uh, um, to a revolution. So hmm. I think we're we're going to see um, some kind of effort to 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 coalesce around um, a, a small group or a, or a single person in order to protect the collective oh. interests, because the Iranian elite is not a sack of potatoes. Hello. Um, I, I agree with Schmuel, but uh, and especially uh, it calls to mind earlier comments, uh, analogies to the Soviet Union. Uh, Kamenev and Zinoviev didn't last very long, so uh, probably there will be some, someone will uh, take charge. And I would, wouldn't be surprised to learn that Qasem Soleimani has um, uh, heretofore unknown qualities as uh, uh, as a cleric and a scholar of um, Shiite law. Uh, final question, just yes or no. Um, within the next 25 years, Halal, I'm going to start down there and, and with Shmuel. Within the next 25 years, 
Will the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty be endangered? I don't think so. Mike? No, it'll hold. Shmuel? It'll be endangered, but it will hold. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> thank you all, uh, and thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Have a lovely rest of your afternoon.